Hey, welcome back. So for today's keynote uh, speaker, we're very uh, lucky to have Chris Kirk, who, as you can see, is associated with several institutions. He has written numerous things in a variety of subjects, uh, consciousness, memory, awareness, all sorts of things that are of interest to us. And uh, importantly, schizophrenia, which he'll be talking about today. So, well, thank you for staying <laughs> so late. I don't know why it keeps changing. And I should say, I, I thought I, if I stand a little here, will I get maximum coverage? Or does it mean that I have my some of you in that moment? But, um, I should first of all say that I am neither a psychiatrist nor a philosopher. I sometimes masquerade as a neuroscientist, but I'm really an experimental psychologist, as you will see, because what I'm going to take you through is a series of experiments, my favorite experiments in schizophrenia. But I'm going to particularly talk about hallucinations and delusions, because I think for a psychologist studying schizophrenia, what we should be trying to explain is the symptoms, not the diagnosis, which anyway changes a bit every time they bring out a new DSM manual. <clears throat> so I'm going to particularly talk about hallucinations and delusions. Hallucinations being false perceptions and delusions being false beliefs. And these are symptoms typically associated with schizophrenia, but of course you can observe certain kinds of hallucinations and delusions in neurological disorders, that by which I mean disorders with known brain damage, including Capgras syndrome and anisognosia, which I will talk about much later. So here are some examples of what I say, and these I believe were translated. So the first one. If I breathe without other people, then they get stuck to me. I get stuck to people, and the thoughts come through the people, etc., etc. It was so bad, I could hear everybody in my mind. It was like being stuck on the same wavelength as people. And buried in that, which is rather difficult to understand, there seems to be a suggestion that he is hearing other people in his mind, which might be an auditory hallucination. The other example, I felt myself touched in such a way that I was hypnotized, electrified, or generally controlled by some sort of medium or some other will. And this is a symptom usually known as delusions of control, which I'm now going to talk about in great detail. But to understand, this is the sort of bit we put in the grant proposal. Um, to understand these psychiatric disorders, we have to address the hardest problem in first century science, neuroscience, that is the relationship between the brain and the mind. Having recently been interacting with Peter Hacker, I now know there's no such thing as the mind, and I should be saying something like a bundle of abilities that we call the mind, or perhaps more accurately, between brain activity and subjective first person experience. How do they relate? Because, of course, the symptoms that I've described to you in schizophrenia are all about subjective first person experience, which they tell you about as we've heard this morning. And the right links to the brain is one of the few things we know for sure about schizophrenia is that there's some relationship with dopamine, so that blocking dopamine receptors reduces the severity of hallucinations and delusions in most patients, and we still don't really know why. And this is an example of the sort of experiment demonstrating this, which obviously I've shown you because I am imagined on it. And it capitalizes on the fact that one of the antipsychotic medications is glucentixol. And glucentixol exists in two isomeric forms, that is, two mirror image forms, one of which, the alpha glucentixol, blocks dopamine receptors and various other things, and the beta glucentixol does not block dopamine receptors, although it does have other effects, so it's not an inert substance. In this experiment, subjects, patients were randomly allocated to these three different treatments, and they were assessed for the severity of hallucinations and delusions over four weeks, so you can see that by week three, the alpha glucentixol produced a greater reduction, and the beta 
this if you can create symptoms by giving people large doses of amphetamine, which regulates their immune system. So my approach is first of all to look for the proximate causes of these specific symptoms, that is the cognitive and neural mechanisms. I'm using cognitive as a synonym for something like information processing or has no implication about consciousness or unconsciousness. And then perhaps try and look for a common neural process across a range of different symptoms. If we can explain one or two symptoms, can we generalize it to other kinds of symptoms? And then finally, can we infer the sort of phenomenology that these people are experiencing as a result of these deviant processes? In other words, what it is like to have these symptoms so I'm being very ambitious and wanting to explain and to understand, as we know about. So I want to concentrate to begin with on the so-called first-rank symptoms of schizophrenia, which were chosen by Kurt Schneider as symptoms which seem to be more or less unique to schizophrenia and not seen in other disorders. And three examples of these first-rank symptoms are delusions of control, that I mentioned, the example of the patient says, I, my fingers pick up the pen, but I don't control it. Thought broadcasting is like my thoughts were shouted out. I can hear them as if they were shouted out. And thought insertion, the most mysterious of all, just like my mind working, these thoughts come from some other person comes to case. Now, what's interesting about these symptoms is that they seem to reflect the confusion between self-generated events and externally generated events. So, for example, we can hear, when you're talking to me, I can hear what you're saying. When I'm talking to you, I can also hear what I'm saying, but I don't make confusion between what I hear from you and what I hear from myself. But in thought broadcasting, the patient seems to be hearing his own thoughts as if they were some sort of external source. And this is, a, this is an interesting example, I think, where thinking about pathological phenomenology makes you also think about what's happening in the normal case. So that is, in the normal case, how is it that we distinguish between self-generated experiences and experiences generated externally? This was a problem considered by Helmholtz, for example, and no doubt people before him. So when something moves across my retina, how do I know whether it's something out in the world moving or it's me moving my eye? Because in both cases, it would simply get movement on the retina. Why is it that when I move my eyes, which I'm doing all the time, the room doesn't jump back? Because it's certainly jumping out on my retina. And there must be some mechanism that enables us to know that this movement is because I'm moving my eyes, and that movement is because he's moving his mouth. <coughs> and the answer, roughly speaking, is that the brain's inference machine is constantly predicting the sensory consequences of actions and as a result, because we can predict the sensory consequences of our actions, so when I move my eye, because of the messages I sent the eye muscles, I can predict what movement is going to take place and I can therefore suppress, and I can predict and therefore suppress the sensations associated with this action. And this is why the world stays still when we move our eyes and why we can't tickle ourselves which I'll come to in a moment. Now this is, this is Daniel Wolfert's model of motor control, which is an example of where prediction comes into the system. You need, and basically what happens here is you have a goal, so you, I want to reach that glass on the table, I have to work out what message I should send to my muscles to reach that glass. This is called to produce the impression of movement. This is called the inverse model, for reasons that are not clear. So you work out what's the best way of what message should I send to my muscles to produce the right movement. But you can also send that you can, on the basis of the message you send to the muscles, you can, the brain, as it were, can predict what's going to happen, where your hand will be, and what you will feel as a result. And these are the predicted sensations here and then you will actually make the movement and then you will get some feedback from your system telling you how much you move your arm, what it feels like, and so on and so on. The problem with any kind of motor control system is that the feedback 
is too slow. So by the time you've made the movement, you won't actually get the feedback from the movement for another few hundred milliseconds. And it's rather like trying to control a super tanker, which is going to move so slowly that you have to predict hours in advance what to do to make the movement. It's essentially the same system. So you have a forward model that predicts what's going to happen if I make this movement, and you can actually check whether you're getting the result you want, even before the movement and you can see this sort of happening in real life. There's something called Pat Rabbit Course of Books effect, which is where you realize, just as you're pressing the button, that you're going to wipe out the hard disk, but it's too late to stop. And in some sense, you know in advance that you've made the wrong movement here. So there is this prediction going on all the time. And of course, it's because, of, because we can predict what we're going to feel that we can cancel out what we actually feel, and we know that we've made a movement. If, some, if you feel something you didn't predict, then something has happened. You hit a when you make a movement. And what you can predict, I mean, this is probably not particularly relevant, but you can predict the location of the limbs in time and space, and where they will be and when after you've made the movement, and you can predict what sensory feedback will be when, as you make the movement. And we can give some examples of the effects this has on our experience of action and how you eliminate most of your sensations when you're moving. You're not really aware of what you're doing most of the time. So this is from Mark Janero's lab a long time ago, as you can see from the hairstyle. And um, what you have to do is you see this screen in front of you and you're controlling the green line and you have to move your cursor from that box there straight head to that box there, but you can't actually see your hand, you see something projected from this computer. And what he, what Furnere and January did is they introduced distortions. So in fact, if I move my hand straight ahead, what I see on the screen will move off to the right. So in order to produce a straight ahead movement on the screen, I actually have to deviate to the left. Now people can very easily do this. You know, on a trial-by-trial -trial basis, you'll immediately make the adjustment and you'll successfully move straight towards the target. What is interesting is you can then ask people, was there any distortion? And you don't notice any distortion up to about 15 degrees, which is quite a lot. It's roughly what I showed there. So you're not aware that you've gone off like that, you think you've gone off like that. And you can test that even more directly I asked the person who's made the movement to go off to the right to the left. You can say, now make that same movement again, and they still can't see their hand, and they don't get any feedback on the screen. So you just say, make the same movement again, and they don't make the movement they just made, they move straight forward. So that, well, that just demonstrates how the awareness we have of our sensations of our actions, as long as everything is working. And the argument is, this is why you can't tickle yourself. So this is video. This is someone tickling, being tickled by somebody else, and is finding it highly sensational. <laughs> <laughs> and this is somebody tickling themselves and not really finding it very exciting at all. And we know that you can't tickle yourself because Lawrence Weisskrantz and Quinn published an article in Nature, I think, in 1921. And, uh, and um, the idea is the reason you can't tickle yourself is because if I'm making the movement, I can predict what I'm going to feel, I can cancel them out, I can predict that that's not very exciting. If somebody else is tickling me, I can't predict what I'm going to feel, and that's not so sensational. And if we use a feather, feathers are interesting because the end of the feather moves in a catastrophic way, so you can't predict what the end of the feather is going to do. So that's why that's tickling. So you can experiment on this using these robots, which are more or less what I showed you here. So you have two robots, one that's operating the thing on your hand, and the other one which you're holding. So the left robot records the movements you make with your right hand, and the right robot stimulates your left hand. Now if they're connected, 
completely correctly, and it's simply that if you are tickling your left hand with a rigid rod, but you can now introduce distortions. So, for example, you can make the right robot make its movements 100 milliseconds delayed, or you can make the right robot make its movements in a different direction. And this is the result you get if you ask people how tickled you feel the intensity. This is when you're being tickled just by the robot and you're not moving at all. This is when you're tickling yourself directly, and it's obviously much more ticklish when the robot is tickling you. But the interesting thing is that you introduce, introduce these delays, so you're tickling yourself but now there's a hundred millisecond delay. It's much more ticklish because you can't as yet predict what's going on. Now, what is, and that happens also, yes, so up to 100 milliseconds. After two, by the time you get to 200 milliseconds, it's as ticklish as something else is going on. The interesting thing is that at 100 milliseconds, although it feels more ticklish, you're not aware of it. So that's just an example of trying to demonstrate how the ability to tickle yourself not to tickle yourself depends on its prediction process. So the, on the basis of this, what we suggested was in distinguishing between internally generated sensations and externally generated sensations depends upon prediction. If something has gone wrong with this distinction, it's an indication that these symptoms perhaps they are not properly mentioned. So in other words, they fail to predict correctly the sensory consequences of their actions in a sense they're abnormally aware of their movements. And in fact, there are a whole series of experiments which I'm not going to tell you about showing you that go to a dynamic model that's predicting timing and report output model that is predicting sensations seem to be abnormal in schizophrenia. I give you two examples. This is another experiment from Sarah Jane Blakemore where she was now taking patients with schizophrenia and we have control subjects we have patients with schizophrenia who have first-grade symptoms at the time of testing and we have patients with schizophrenia who have other kinds of symptoms but not first-grade symptoms and what you're looking at here is the difference in rating between tickling yourself and being tickled by Sarah Jane Blakemore and in the control subjects it's obviously much more ticklish when it's somebody else but in the patients with first-grade symptoms, there's really no difference between the sensation they get from taking themselves or being taken by themselves. Now, obviously, this is slightly worrying because you might worry about what does it mean asking someone to wake up to which the sensation means, like misinterpretation or something. So we try to come up with a more objective. So this is from Daniel Walker's lab. So this is now a force matching task. So you are presented with a force, that is to say, the machine presses your forefinger with a fixed amount of force, which force is measured in newtons. So there are six different levels of force. There are several levels of force. Your finger is pressed with a certain amount of force. Then immediately afterwards, you have to reproduce that force by yourself. That's force matching. But there are two ways you can do this. So in this case, you move this little lever, which operates a force transducer, and the amount of force you apply depends on the position of the lever. And this is the line that you get. So you see that people are extremely good at matching the force. It's a very small force. They apply a very small force with this lever. And it really fits very well with the expected line. The interesting thing is this condition, where you apply the force by directly pressing with your other finger, and because you're doing it yourself, the prediction is you will attenuate what you feel. It's like when you tickle yourself, you don't feel very much. When you press yourself, you feel less than the actual pressure. And you can see this results here. Although there's a very strong relationship between the force applied and the force you match, you're actually pressing about one and a half times more in order to match the force you felt when you apply it with your own finger as opposed to using this force matching device. 
And you can try this at home. A different version of this is a sort of game where you have two people, perhaps two children with each other. So you press one of them on the finger and you say, now write, you, you reproduce that force on your friend's finger, which I do, and then he has to reproduce the force on the first person's finger, and then they have to reproduce the force on the second person's finger. And of course, they apply more force every time, because the force you feel if someone else presses you is correct, but the force you feel when you press someone else is less than it really is, so you press harder in order to match the force you press them. So they press harder and harder and they get very cross and they say he's pressing harder and each time. And you can see this in children who hit each other where it escalates. So this is the explanation of force escalation in all sorts of situations. So the key point of course is what happens with patients with schizophrenia doing this task. And you will see that they're perfectly good at it, just as good as the controls when they're using this little device here. But when they actually press with their own finger, they're actually better than the controls. They're closer to the force that was really applied because they're showing less of this extenuation to the self-generated And the one flaw in this experiment which I'm very ashamed of is that we have no measure of symptoms. So all we can say this was the case in these patients with schizophrenia, but we can't say it was especially the case in those who had delusion control. <coughs> but we can leave that. They were all on medication, yeah, so that's a problem. That was always a problem. So I think we're now able to ask the question what is it like to have delusion control? Which is when the patient says, I'm somebody else's making me make So I'm suggesting that because of these prediction failures, the sensory consequences of the patient's own actions are not suppressed. So when I move my arm just like this, the sensory consequences of the action are suppressed and I don't really feel anything. But if somebody else moved my arm, I would feel all these sensory consequences. So for the patient, it's literally the case that active movements, when they make an active movement, it feels like a passive movement because of all these sensations that shouldn't be there because it's an active movement. So it seems to me reasonable that you could conclude this feels like a passive movement, not like an active movement. Somehow I'm being controlled, or that's probably not quite enough. But it, I think it gives you some idea of what it might feel like for these patients who are talking But as I was just hinting at, why should the lack of prediction create an abnormal experience of agency? That is to say, you could say there's something wrong with my arm, but there I should say somebody else is and I, what I'm going to go on to now is new research on how the experience of agency depends on retrospective as well as predictive components. Let me explain that. So, experience of agency, that is making a movement and feeling that we intend it and we're in control of it, is affected by the consequences of what happens as a result of the movement and by the intentions and the expectations which you start off with before you make the movement. And this is now, there are lots and lots of experiments along, on these phenomena in normal people, or people without symptoms, um, showing the role of outcomes and intentions. And very recently, a couple of experiments appeared more or less simultaneously in the brain, using very different mechanisms to study the same distinction in people with schizophrenia, and now specifically relating it to symptoms like delusions of control. So this experiment here from Sinofchik is rather like the Janino experiment I showed you earlier. <clears throat> so someone has to make a pointing movement, but they can't see their hand, they can only see the screen that's being generated by the computer. So they might make a pointing movement like this, so the visual feedback comes out differently. And the first thing they look at is how good are people at knowing where their arm actually is when they've made their pointing movement, even though the visual feedback is misleading, or if there's no visual feedback. So you can measure how accurately how accurate are you at knowing where your arm is when you don't have any outcomes. So this depends on your visual intention 
situation than the two. And we can see that the patients are much worse than the controls at this judgment, suggesting that they're not fully aware or not taking account of the intentions behind the movement. The second phase is that you eventually learn to adapt to this false feedback. So you can learn how to produce the movement you want to come to the right position on the screen. And in fact, in terms of this method, the patients are significantly better than the controls. They can adapt faster. And this, of course, depends on paying, only paying attention to the outcome of your movement and ignoring your intention. So they're concluding that the patients with delusional control, their behavior is more affected by the outcome and less by motor expectations. Now, meanwhile, Foss and colleagues in Berlin with Patrick Haggard are doing a Patrick Haggard type experiment which I have to explain would be something called intentional binding. <laughs> so this, in this experiment, you simply press a button and 250 milliseconds later, there's a tone. And you can ask people afterwards, or using a clock as in the experiment, you can get an estimate of people when did you press the button and when did you hear a tone. And if you're causing the tone to occur, these times get closer together, and you've got a mental time and now a physical time. So the button press appears to be slightly later, and the tone appears to be slightly earlier. This is called intentional binding, because when your intended action causes an outcome, they're brought together in time. If you zap people with magnetic stimulation, causing them to lift their finger involuntarily, and that's followed by the tone, then they actually move apart. But it's only when you are the cause of the tone that you give us and this intentional finding of actions to outcomes has a retrospective and predictive component, which I will try to explain. So here we have the retrospective component. So in this case, you press the button, and the tone occurs, but only 50% of the time. And what you find is you get more intentional finding when the tone occurs. And that is to say, the time at which you believe you press the button is affected when the tone is more pulled towards the tone when the tone occurs than when it does not occur here. But this, of course, the tone doesn't occur until 250 milliseconds later. So this thing has happened later and affected the time at which you think you press the button. So that's a retrospective effect of outcome on your experience of action. The other comparison is the predictive component, which is where you have you press the button and the tone occurs 50% of the time in one experiment. You press the button and the tone occurs 75% of the time in the other experiment. So you have a much greater expectancy of the tone in this experiment than that experiment. And here you find that when you have a greater expectancy, well, even if the tone doesn't occur, then you get more intensive findings. So this is a measure of how your expectation of what's going to happen influences your experience your experience being the initiator of the action. And what this experiment shows very strongly indeed, I am amazed, is that the predictive, you can measure the predictive effect and the retrospective effect. For schizophrenic patients with delusions of control, there's almost no predictive effect, a strong effect on the controls, whereas for the retrospective effect, the effect of outcome has a very strong effect on the patients and a rather small effect. So this is effectively getting the same result. That patients with delusion of control put much more weight on the outcomes of their actions than they do on the intentions and expectations associated with their actions. So it's again consistent with the idea that for some reason they're failing to predict what's going to happen. They depend much more strongly on what actually does happen. So what I think these experiments show is that patients with delusions of control have problems combining information from two different sources, expectations and outcomes, and they put too much weight on outcome and too little on expectations. And this can explain some of their behavior and perhaps the experiences they report. So what is this mechanism that underlies the perception of an action? So I now want to talk about mechanisms for perception, not just an action, everything. 
So when we perform an action, and I'm talking, of course, at a subpersonal level, brain, as it were, predicts the immediate outcome of the action on the basis of prior knowledge, and to the extent that the outcome of the action is not as expected, we modify our prior expectations. And this is essentially a Bayesian account. And what I will also show is that this makes no real distinction between perceptions and beliefs. In both cases, both perceptions and beliefs depend on the interaction between prior expectations and the evidence of the outcome.
this is why it's called a reward ditch. You know, when you get an unexpected reward, it goes up. When you get a reward that you expect nothing happens. When you don't get a reward, it is expected, it goes down. So basically, it's signaling your prediction error. So it's higher if you predict it. You don't expect it when it happens, and it's there if you expect it when it doesn't happen. And this is a very useful signal for all kinds of learning. Because of this signal, you can learn about the world as it's constantly changing. Hold back a second here. So you can use prediction errors to continually update representations of an ever changing world. And this is, I think, this is a slightly different way of thinking about learning. Because we tend to think about learning as there's a rule we learn from. And in fact, in real life, things are changing all the time. So we can't be learning and unlearning what to expect to happen. And this is captured in the lab using probabilistic learning. So instead of A being right 100% of the time and B never, A is right 80% of the time and B is right 20% of the time. So here's an experiment with people from my friend Matthias Vassilieri, where they have to learn a whole lot of rules, but basically they see these two arbitrary and they have to learn that one of them is usually associated with rewards and the other one isn't. So you choose, you learn to choose the one that's associated with rewards. Then there are other pairs where you have to learn that one of them is associated with a loss and the other one isn't. So you have to choose the one that isn't associated with a loss. And this just shows that people can learn this task and they get better and better at choosing the reward and stimulus and they get better and better at avoiding the losing stimulus. But they were given L dopa, which increases dopamine in the brain, and L haradol, which suppresses dopamine in the brain. And you can see at least learning about games, if you're given dopamine, you learn quicker. If your dopamine is suppressed, you learn more slowly. Now the interest, and in fact you can, because he has a model of how the learning occurs, you can say when you're given dopamine, the one pound coin that you win is effectively equivalent to one pound twenty-seven. And when you're given a parallel one pound coin is equivalent to eight percent of the That learning weight. There's an interest, and this is where it all happens in the mid-brain, where the dopamine going on. Interestingly, you notice that the dopamine has no effect whatsoever on learning about the muscles. And this is interesting because, as you saw, some of you may know, people with Parkinson's disease are given dopamine activating meditation, and they sometimes are at risk of becoming pathological gamblers. This is typically the idea that they learn about the games and nothing about the happiness. And it might even fit with the idea, although I don't really believe this, but certainly one of the aspects of the movement of patients is that they they pay attention to evidence in favour of their delusion and they ignore the evidence against their delusion. The reason I don't believe this is that all scientists do this. And also, we know, going back to this, if there's something funny happening with dopamine and probabilistic learning, then we expect to find something funny about probabilistic learning in people diagnosed with schizophrenia. And there does indeed seem to be evidence of that abnormality and integration of new evidence into beliefs. Jumping to conclusions is a famous example. I don't know whether you know about this, but basically you're given two jars of balls, one of which has, I don't know, 10 red and you know, 20, 20 red and 80 green, and the other has 80 red and 20 green. And you pick out one jar one at a time and you have to decide at what point you decide this is the 80 red jar. Patients decide to <coughs> control. So that's counting. And indeed, that's a come up with a conclusion. And there's also this bias against penetration. <coughs> and obviously, such abnormalities might underlie the formation of delusional beliefs. Ah, I do have a question. So, this is again from Paul Fletcher's group in Cambridge, where he's actually scanning patients and controls doing. Probabilistic learning task and a causal inference learning task, particularly doing the same thing. This is a bit of the midbrain again, where you expect to see the reward prediction errors. And you can see that the controls show a big reward prediction error, 
where compared to the other kind of um, trials, where the patient should know Now this is interesting, and it's obviously very nice in the sense it seems to be consistent with this I hope I've convinced you how Jeffrey might be involved in the formation of these. It's an excess dopamine which we know is found between the endocrine and the And so there's a normal response prediction errors, abnormal probabilistic learning, and false perceptions and dopamine. So, does excess dopamine create false prediction errors? That's the next hypothesis. <coughs> So having said to experience when making active movement or keeping yourself as an example of false protection, you shouldn't get this. <coughs> and the false protection of course is the abnormally delivered to the visual control So the next question is can all the characteristic clinical symptoms be explained in terms of false protection? But first I think I have to talk a bit about how can a prediction error be false. So now I'm coming back to, to neurological disorders. So anosognosia occurs after a stroke which causes paralysis in the right arm. And anosognosia is a false belief that the paralyzed right arm can be used. Now, strokes on the right side of the brain also cause something called a patient neglect So these patients, if you ask them to clap, if I can clap them, they think they can So the theory behind this is that we have an patient who has a perfect good intention to move this paralyzed left arm, which creates a forward model. But because of this right part of those damage, there's no representation of the outcome. So you have a forward model, we have the intention to move, it's all predictions about what's going to happen when he moves, and there's no signal coming back saying no movement is occurred. As a result, he thinks the movement is And his false belief about this is unchanged because there's no evidence of injury. That was the way of those who crossed the road. And there's a very elegant experiment about the couple in the brain using, heavily using a rather handy version of the brain straight harvest to calculate. So, in that case, the, the false, the prediction error is false because of due to the disconnection. Error signal never arrived in this We've got a false match. Now, here's another example of CAPTAR syndrome, where I'm suggesting again through a disconnection, a false error signal is created. So, CAPTAR syndrome is where, and you can compare various disorders like Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders, <coughs> where the patient believes typically that his wife has been replaced by an imposter. And the theory about this is that we have two systems of face recognition, one of which is to do with identity, so you can see you recognize who this person is, and the other is to do with some sort of emotional response. So when you see your wife, you're not only recognize who she is, but you get emotional response and you even drive that direction this emotional response. Um, in Capra syndrome, the idea is the emotional loop because of disconnection from the amygdala. So you get a system, you get a situation where the person, the identity system works for the patient, the patient is the 
this person looks at that and that and that, but it doesn't feel right. And therefore, that is the so the idea here is that because the expected signal from the user indicating what it feels like in the signal price is not there, this is an error signal, which is then this is what we call a false error signal, which is then produced in this course where the wife is going to be chased by the constructor. So again, it's through a disconnection, the false error signal in this case is created. So in these cases, circumscribed brain damage leads to circumscribed delusions. It's used as a characteristic feature neurological delusions, similar to neurological damage, but not to a circumscribed So if in the case of schizophrenia, what I'm suggesting is that the predictor of signal becomes abnormally precise. This is the most recent idea from Carl Christian and his group. That prediction errors, it's not just the magnitude, you get a prediction error, which has a magnitude, but it also has a standard deviation, as we know from our statistics. And of course, if you attend, when you have to decide whether this prediction error is significant, should you do something about it? And that depends, of course, on the ratio of the size of the prediction error to its variability. It has a very high variability in our domain. And precision is just the inverse of this inverse. So if your prediction errors become abnormally precise, then we will start attending to things that we shouldn't be attending to. We shouldn't be saying you'll be updating your beliefs on situations where you shouldn't be updating So you get this signal that's indicating everything's a strong So as a result, beliefs are updated on basis of signals that we're willing to ignore. Now what's quite interesting is that I think in the long run, this is happening to you over and over this will lead to a downgrading of the weight put on the trials or trial expectations because they so frequently use error. So that might be why at this low level patients put much more attention to the evidence and much less attention to the trial expectations because they can learn that their trial expectations are constantly leading to errors. So in this case, altered brain function leads to a general problem. So I hope I've given you a sensible account of why patients put more weight on outcomes than their expectations. But the problem with this account is it seems to predict that patients should constantly change their beliefs each time new evidence or evidence comes in. And in fact, what we know is that they tend to stick to whatever they are. So I now have to produce clever hand waving to speculate why this might be the case. And this is, I'm going to speculate this is because there's actually a Bayesian hierarchy in the horizon And this again is due to Carl Christian's group. So this is his model of this hierarchical Bayesian system. So each of these little columns here is a little device I've described to you where you have an expectation and evidence and then you have to So this is essentially and then there's a picture that goes up here, and then there's a hierarchy. So his idea is there's a hierarchy. So here you have sensory evidence from the environment, but here you have a prediction error from the low level system going up to the next highest level system. So each little column generates a prediction error at a higher level that goes higher up the system, requiring a more abstract belief system to be able to generate. So let me try and. Yeah, so so at the low level of hierarchy, the prediction errors are the evidence that is sent up to the next level of hierarchy. And the trials at the higher level, which are sometimes constrain the possible explanations of the prediction errors at the lower levels. And I will try to give you an example, a toy example of this in the case of reading. So these perfectly ordinary sentences, I hope Jack and Jill went up the hill, and the last event was cancelled. And you can read them perfectly well. And in the sentences, there's a bottom-up theory of reading. This is the way reading works, is that you see the shape. And 
Suggesting is that when the dictionary has become full, beliefs at the top of the hierarchy must be adjusted to explain why the low level beliefs are constantly having to change. And it's these high level beliefs that become so So, this is again my poor example. You have a crockish car which has signals on the tire on the platform, telling you that something is going to so of course the signal comes on, the light comes on, telling you that there's something wrong with the engine. But in fact the reason the light comes on, comes on is not because there's something wrong with the engine, there's something going wrong with the cylinder. But it's checked, but it's coming wrong also. It's telling you something wrong with the engine. But you don't know that. So you take the car out the car and say there's something wrong with the engine, which is your first question. The car says there's nothing wrong with the engine. So you now believe you report the garage, the good garage guy, that is not stuck up, so you now believe that the good garage guy is stuck. And you probably finish out believing that everybody is going to be Anyway, so that's a toy example of how something rather simple to pop in, and the system can actually expand itself into a whole series of false beliefs about the world. So it's an example of a false prediction error at the increasingly higher level of So prediction errors, it is a change in our interpretation of sensory input. False prediction errors will be transmitted at a hierarchy of interpretation in a sensory experience way. And this leads to a fundamental restructuring of our model as well. And I want to finish somewhat anecdotally with some, a report by Peter Chadwick who is a clinical psychologist who experienced a severe psychiatric episode and has written about this in the And he describes, I think, very nicely this restructuring of his work caused by So he says, I had to make sense, any sense, out of all these uncanny coincidences. So things were happening on the radio. I did it by radically changing my conception. So the false prediction errors, which would leave out any coincidences, forced him to change his model of the world. And he had to conclude that other people, including radio and television, had ever seen him. So that's, I think that's just a nice story, if you like, of how this system I talked about might give violence to the sort of experiences Even though it starts off as something rather basic and straightforward, so we have time for some questions. Um, 
So I'll ask you a question. <laughs> so so uh, on the on the Bayesian model of uh, you, you can get weird updating in different ways on a Bayesian model. So you can get weird updating if you have strange priors going into things, um, or if you have like skewed likelihood ratios. Um, or a third, a third way you might think you could get it is, is that some, sometimes experiences are so weird that I just ditch all my priors and come up with some, some new ones. Um, is, there, is there any reason to prefer one of those ways of thinking about what is happening? Um, no, I think at this moment, no, I mean, we haven't had a much better account of how this relates to what's actually going on at the present level. Uh, before we could probably distinguish I mean, I've, for a very long time, I precisely wanted to do the experiment where I put people into a situation that's so weird that they turn over their trials. Have I never got that? Well, this may be more believers. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Pope resigned shortly after. <laughs> 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 okay, well, no one has any other questions. I guess we should thank uh, Chris and then we'll break. Thanks, so thanks very much.